Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to celebrate your arrival into this world, to look forward to your second coming. Lord, to celebrate your arrival in each of our lives and how you've impacted each of us and how you continue to do that today. We ask that you bless us this morning as we continue in worship, as we continue looking into your word and singing and reflecting together on who you are and all you've done for us. And it's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. If you are not familiar with who I am, my name is John Lemons and I'm the minister to young adults here at First Baptist. And from time to time, I get to share with you. And so today's one of those times and it's a joy to be here with you this morning. We'll be in uh, Luke chapter 2. This morning, you can turn there now. We'll get to it in a little bit. There's some other scripture references in your, in your Bible. I'll reference those, but we'll be together in Luke chapter 2 if you want to go ahead and turn there. Now, I think all of us would agree, would say that life has a way of giving us a lot of really forgettable moments, a few possibly really overwhelming moments, and a number of underwhelming moments. And Sometimes those underwhelming moments are memorable because they're underwhelming. But whatever it gives us, it, it doesn't really prepare us very well for those. I'll give you an example. When I was in seminary, we had a class called Supervised Experience in Ministry. It was supposed to be sort of like a lab. It was supposed to be where as students we got to walk through and practice uh, things that we would be doing in ministry. It was oftentimes taught by an adjunct professor so it wasn't someone full-time on the faculty of my school. It was usually a local pastor who was contracted to come and teach this class, somebody who had uh, mounds of experience in doing the things that we were supposed to be learning. Now, I'll just go ahead and say, like, there will never come a day uh, when I will be asked to be an adjunct professor, mainly because, uh, or some, somewhat because nobody would want me, but mainly because my name would either be Dr. Lemons or Professor Peaches. Um, both of which sound like villains in an Austin Powers movie. But this class was led by an adjunct professor and I had students, fr uh, friends of mine who had taken this class previously with other professors and, and their experience was usually something along the lines of where they would, they would talk about baptism or weddings or funerals and then they would perform weddings and funerals and, and, and baptisms for each other just to kind of get practice at it. So I was looking forward to this class because I'd never had these experiences myself as in a ministerial role. But my class with my professor was basically 10 weeks of, of a lecture uh, that really didn't apply to much of what we were going to be doing when we got out into, into the real world, uh, followed by uh, 20 minutes, the very last class uh, on how to do a wedding and a handout on how to do a funeral. Uh, so it was a very underwhelming experience for me didn't really prepare me for what I would be doing later on in life. And now you know. Um, I'll give you another example of an underwhelming life moment that happened recently that I read about. There was a man named Roger. Roger lived in California. And as he was getting ready to move to Ohio, something happened that happens when, when you move. You get caught up in moving your boxes putting them in your car, going back in your house, and inevitably somebody leaves a door open somewhere and you have a pet 
that sees the opportunity and seizes the opportunity and makes a run for it. And this happened to poor Roger. His cat that he'd had for 12 years bolted out the door and he lost her. And so Roger did what you or I would do because if you've had a pet for 12 years, they're sort of a member of the family. And so he begins to look for his cat so much so that he delays his move by a year. So I don't know who was on the other side of that move, whether it was an employer or a a girl, whoever it was, they just got a call that was like, hey, I need to stick around for a year and find my cat. All right, so that's what he does. A year goes by, he doesn't find the cat, so he makes the move to Ohio. Six years after that, he gets a call one day and they say, are you Roger? And he says, yes. And they say, we found your cat. And it turns out that a woman in California was driving, saw a stray cat on the side of the road, thought it looked malnourished, took it to the vet. They cleaned it up. They gave it some hydration. They fed it and they checked it for microchips and turned out Roger's name came up. So he was elated as most of us would be. He flew to California to meet his cat again, to be reunited after seven years apart. It was a moment that was built for social media. And because this is 2019, the media was there, all the vet techs and lab technicians were there and he was there and people were videoing it on their camera, on their phone, live streaming it. The moment when he gets to meet his cat after seven years of being away. How overwhelming is that? So they bring the cat out, they open the box and guess what the cat does? What cats do? Licks its paw and looks around and wonders if somebody's gonna get it out of the box. And Roger's there and he's crying and everybody's like, woo, this is so great. And then nothing happens. And then we're like, oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's a cat, so. I mean, I love cats, I have one, but. That's how they react. That's how mine would react. So it becomes this sort of underwhelming moment for for Roger. In Luke chapter 2, let's read verses 4 through 7 together. Many of us have read this before and these are familiar words to us. And it says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Do you ever feel underwhelmed, maybe not just by life, but maybe in your relationship with God? Do you ever feel like maybe there was a time and a place where God was really vibrant in your life, but now you you wonder if he's there or you wonder if you've lost that connection somehow? I talk to people all the time, guests and, and new members who are young adults, and I always ask them a couple questions. One is, how did you come to faith if they came to faith? And it's usually a story where either they've had some transcendent moment or where they say, you know, just a series of things happened and when I look back on it, I see the hand of God at work in that. And then oftentimes what people will tell me is, you know, I wish I could get that back. Like I don't, I don't know where that feeling went or I, I, I'm not sure I'm experiencing that now. I wish I could get that back. So we, we tend to have these moments, I think, in our spiritual lives even where we feel a little underwhelmed. And when we really look at the first Christmas and the details of that story and just that story itself, 
It's kind of an underwhelming story. I mean, Christmas now is a big deal. It's overwhelming. I'm, I'm preaching in front of a 40-foot Christmas tree with 8,000 lights on it. That's overwhelming. Christmas today is overwhelming. That very first Christmas was underwhelming. And the reason why is because that Christmas and, and, and the years leading up to it was littered with people who thought their prayers were not being answered. I mean, if you read on in Luke chapter 2, you find Anna and Simeon, both who were in the temple, both who were very old, both who had been waiting for a long time to see the Messiah, the promised deliverer. And they saw Jesus when he came to the temple to be circumcised, but they were both very advanced in age. Both had to be wondering, are my prayers being answered? The Christmas story also includes Zechariah, the, the father of John the Baptist, who's in the temple one day and an angel appears to him and says, your wife is going to conceive and give birth to a child. And Zechariah's response is, but she's really old. So Zechariah's response is not the response of someone who prayed that that morning. It seems like the response of someone who maybe prayed it decades ago and forgot about it. Or we have the people themselves, the people of the nation of Israel who for 400 years have had nothing but silence. The last words of the Old Testament were, were the prophet Malachi. And it was 400 years before the time of Jesus. Just to put that in perspective, 412 years ago, the colony of Jamestown was founded. Like think about how ancient that feels and imagine that there was some promise that was made before that, that got to that point. And then since then, we haven't really heard anything about it and we're just still waiting for it today. Imagine being in that place. We would think that we were a people whose prayers were not being answered. We would be underwhelmed. And then even in the case of what has happened, Jesus has been bored. Okay, but, but now he's a baby. And now we got to wait for him to grow up. And then he grows up and then oh, he's not really meeting our expectations. Okay, well, let's, let's wait and see what happens after that. And it's just a series of sort of underwhelming occurrences. What about Mary and Joseph? What must they have thought? Because they had some overwhelming experiences. I mean, Joseph had a dream. An angel appeared to Mary. But then the events that happened after that, how much have they must have been wondering, is this really right? Like, is this really where we're supposed to be and really what's supposed to be happening? Like, God, we could use another dream or an angel could, you know, just clarify something for us, please. But they, they don't get that experience. This whole story is littered with people who think that their prayers are not being answered, that they're not being heard. Yet we know that God is at work. And there were overwhelming moments too. The magi, the star, things like that were really transcendent moments that are a part of the story. If you were here a few weeks ago on, on a Wednesday night, Dr. Henry Everett, who's a, physics, a physicist, he's, he's uh, with Redstone Arsenal, but he also is an adjunct professor at many universities. But he was here a few weeks ago on a Wednesday night talking about the star of Bethlehem and talking about the nativity story. And one of the things he shared there was that more than likely in his estimation that this journey to Bethlehem was during uh, the time of Passover. And so, yes, they were going for the uh, census that was to be taken. 
But the reason why there were so many people there, the reason that there was no room for Mary and Joseph to stay was because it was during Passover. And if I may tack onto that, I would say in that case, it makes a lot of sense for them to have no room to stay because being good Jews like they were, Mary being expectant like she was, she has a child, anybody in her vicinity all of a sudden is ritually impure. So if you have all these people that are gathered to go to Jerusalem for Passover and then all of a sudden they're impure, they can't celebrate Passover. So it makes a lot of sense for them to wind up in a stable or likely in a cave somewhere. Again, an underwhelming part of the story. Like here's this deliverer we've been waiting for and he's born to this poor couple in a cave in the sticks because that's what Bethlehem is. And when the Magi get to Jerusalem and wonder where he is and you wonder why the relig religious leaders don't go with them, it's probably why. 400 years of waiting, I don't think this is it. That had to be what was going through their minds. But when we look also at the scripture and we take it as a whole now, not just what's in the text, in that story itself, but in the whole, and we add up the underwhelming pieces, we begin to become overwhelmed. For instance, we know that there were shepherds that left their flocks to visit the lamb who has come. That's a little underwhelming of a detail until you remember that later on Jesus tells a story about a shepherd who leaves his flock of 99 to go and find the one sheep who has strayed. And then we realize this story is not about the shepherds coming to him, it is about him coming to them. Whoa. It becomes a little bit more overwhelming. Or when we think about Jesus being born in this cave or in this stable, in the cold, in the dark, and there's no room, and then later on he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. Then we begin to realize he left his room. There's no room for him because he's making room for us. When we look in John chapter one and it says the light has come into the world and the darkness is not, cannot overcome it. Or we read Genesis chapter one where it says God spoke and there was light. And we see Luke two is Luke's version of those two theological truths that Jesus is the light who went out into the cold, into the dark to bring us in to the light. And when you put those underwhelming pieces together, the whole thing becomes a lot more overwhelming. So I told you about this class I had in seminary that, where I had this underwhelming experience. As I went on from seminary into my first ministry job, I was working at my first church, I got to do my first baptism. And as I was getting ready to do that, they were sort of walking me through what to do. They took me up to the baptistry. It was a lot different than ours. It was lower, so it was right behind the choir. This one's a little bit higher. But they were walking me through and they just said, oh, here's the baptistry. There's a platform in here that, that was for kids to stand on. Well, I wasn't baptizing any children, so they said, you know, when time comes when you go in there, just kind of scoot it out of the way and it'll be fine. And I was like, okay, this is a little underwhelming of a walkthrough, but we'll make it work. So the time comes, I'm getting ready to do my first baptism. I go into the baptistry, I see the platform and I begin to scoot the platform out of the way. The problem is I kind of gave it a good kick and there's no resistance underwater and it just keeps going. 
and I see it just keep going to the side. And if you were able to watch me at the time, you would have seen me do this. Because, y'all, I kicked the drain plug out of the baptistry. I didn't even know baptistries had drain plugs. Seems like something we could have covered in a class or a walkthrough. I know now. So I realize the moment I see that happen, it's all the way in the upper left corner of the baptistry. I've got about four minutes before I'm baptizing people into the Methodist church. And you guys know I'm a baseball fan, like baseball has unwritten rules. Well, so does being a Baptist. Like you may have heard the old phrase, don't drink, don't smoke, don't, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. That's my friend Chad's favorite. Another unwritten rule about being a Baptist is don't drain the baptistry before you have to baptize people. So here I am, bubbles are coming up, it's going glug, glug, glug. And I have to quickly deduce what am I going to do? And I come up with four options. Option number one was just dive down myself and take care of it. Problem with that, I quickly ruled that out because I was wearing waders. And if you don't know what waders are, basically they're rubber overalls. We wore, wore robes and so you'd wear these overalls under your robes to keep your clothes from getting wet. Fishermen wear these so they can wade out into a river and keep fishing in the middle of a stream. Baptist or Pastors wear these under robes so that we don't have to change clothes after we do baptisms. The problem with wearing a waiter is that if I got underwater, I wasn't going to come back up. So that was option number one. I quickly ruled that out. Option number two was try to get it with my foot. The problem is, again, I'm already up there in the middle of the baptistry in front of everybody. So how do I do that discreetly? So I just start kind of going... But then I realized, what does that look like? Like they're probably sitting there wondering why my upper body's bouncing up and down and wondering if I'm doing the river dance in the baptistry. And then I also realized if I go too low, the water's gonna come into my waders. That option got ruled out. Option number three that I thought of was, is there some way I could relay a message to one of the baptism candidates and kind of hold them down a little bit longer and let them get the plug. <laughs> So yeah, then I thought, well, what does that look like? It's right, it's right there, right, right there, right, th right there. I gotta hold this one down a little longer. His list of sins is long. So I ruled that one out. Option four was really my only option. Dunk them and chunk them, man, in the most reverent way possible. It was literally the fastest I've ever talked in my life. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, go. If you've ever seen an old World War II movie where the paratroopers are jumping out of the plane and the commander's at the front going, go, go, go. That was me in the baptistry that day. And it was all because I'd had these two underwhelming experiences that added up to a really overwhelming one. So how do we do that? when we look at our spiritual lives, how do we look at the underwhelming moments and try to add them up and see the overwhelming moment in all of it? I think we get a clue in this chapter from Mary. It tells us later on 
In verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Mary remembered this story and, and obviously remembered the birth of her child. And we think the reason we have these stories today is because she told these stories. And probably as she went throughout life, she began to attach things to these memories to help her remember them better. Or as things clarified, as, as Jesus would teach certain things, like about a shepherd leaving the 99 to go find the one, she would remember these details even more because she would attach emotional significance to them. We know that our brains are hardwired this way. That when we experience things really emotional, they get fused on our brain. This is why you can remember songs that you haven't heard since high school and they can come on the radio and you can sing all the words because probably you've attributed that, that song to a very powerful moment in your life. Maybe an old boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe a group of friends and you used to listen to music in the parking lot before walking in the school or something like that. Anniversaries are the same way. They're a yearly reminder of this powerful moment in our lives and sometimes we'll get together and we'll share like you remember that one time or do you, do you remember that day? And it's a very powerful memory for us because we've attached emotional significance to it. And then, whether through routine like anniversaries or non-routine like songs coming on the radio, things happen in our lives to trigger these memories. This is the way our brains are hardwired. And then when we read the Old Testament, we see this is how the people of God celebrated and worshiped together because God would have them celebrate festivals. God would have them build altars so that every time they walked by that altar, every time they celebrated that festival, they remembered what the Lord had done. And you see this theme begin to play out throughout scripture. Remember the Lord. Remember what the Lord has done. And they build these markers or signposts or altars or festivals into their life to force them to remember. And as the years would tick by, it would come to mind again and maybe they'd attach some more significance to it and it would carry even more weight and more power and this maybe underwhelming thing took on a larger picture and became more overwhelming. Remember the Lord, this theme that appears. And we already do this with so many things in our life. I can't see a bathtub plug or a baptism or someone come really close to losing their job without thinking <laughs> of that baptism. It is ingrained, fused in my mind, and it is a fresh memory as if it happened last week. And it's something I revisit often because there are triggers in my life that make me revisit it. Christmas is a built-in collective reminder of what the Lord has done. It is a way for the people of God to come together annually and remember the day God came into the world as the light of the world and to remember that he's going to come again. But what about you? As I said earlier, 
I would imagine you've had at least one experience in your life of something transcendent, something that you maybe believe was the Spirit of God present with you at some point in your life. Or maybe you can look back on a series of events and see now, man, God was really leading me through something and I didn't see it at the time. Whatever it is, I would encourage you to figuratively build signposts and markers and altars in a routine so that you can revisit those, so that when you are walking through the dark, you can remember what the Lord has done. You can remember that he is with you because he was with you before. And in 10 days, many of us will get together with those that we love the most in our lives, have a time of sharing and feasting together. And I would encourage you to share your marker, share your story, your underwhelming moment, as underwhelming as it may be. If it happened two years ago or 25 years ago, share with your loved ones your underwhelming moment and invite them to share. Your siblings, your parents, your grandparents, your nieces, your nephews, your grandchildren, everybody, share. This is what the Lord has done for me. This is my underwhelming moment. And as those stories add up and as you see, if you have a family of faith, as you hear people's stories, you will see where the Lord has been at work in your family. And if you don't have that, your story may be one of God delivering you from a dysfunctional family. It could be a sad time, but also a time to be thankful for where he is and to look forward to sharing that story with others who may have the same experience. Whatever it is, share your story as underwhelming as it might be and hear other people's underwhelming stories and see together the overwhelming work of God in and around you. Remember what the Lord has done. That is what Christmas is for. That is what our signposts, our markers, our altars in our individual lives are for as well. We're gonna enter into a time of invitation now. I will be down front, so, so will two other ministers. We're gonna sing hymn number 107. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is a story of these two followers of Jesus. One is nameless, one, this is the only time we ever hear about him. And they were talking with Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus and Jesus leaves and they realize who it was. And they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he was walking alongside us and explaining things from the scriptures? And you may be having that moment now where you feel your heart burning within you. And if so, I would encourage you to consider that the movement of the spirit on your life. This may be your altar, your signpost, your marker moment. If so, I would invite you to come down and share that with one of us down front. Hymn number 107.